With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come check us out. Uh, give us nice reviews. Sacrifice fifty oxen to ball. Do whatever you want. Um, I'm very excited today. That's why I'm rushing through our intros uh, to have old friend uh, and um, and I, I mean that in both senses of the word. And um, a uh, guy I owe a lot to, and I've learned an enormous amount from uh, the former. Uh, president of the American Enterprise Institute, who now teaches at some trade school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, called ha- Harvard or something. I, I can't really understand something. I don't know how to pronounce that. And um, he has a new book which debuted, debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, I don't think people appreciate how difficult that is to do if you're not named Oprah. Um, <laughs> And the book is called From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. And its author, Arthur Brooks. Arthur, welcome back to The Remnant. Thank you, Jonah. What a delight. I'm looking at you. People are listening to us, but I get to look at you and it makes me happy to see you. It makes me miss you all the more. Oh, that's sweet. And I miss you. As we were talking about beforehand, I I, I miss you as well. I, look, I... Huge fan of of Robert Doerr. I think he's doing a great job as the new president of AEI. But you're the guy who was dumb enough to bring me on board to AEI, and I will forever be uh, grateful for that. And um, and I gotta say, I learned. I mean, I, I was not blowing smoke. I learned an enormous amount from you, um, and how to sort of reframe questions and all these sorts of things. Um, Thank you, Jonah. Out. And by the way, this was one of the one of the really best decisions I made as president of AEI. We didn't have a long tradition of hiring people that had your skill set um, before. And I remember asking, you know, people on the board and you know senior people at AEI, you know, we bring on somebody like Jonah Goldberg. Is, how do you think it's going to change the organization? And I just had this intuition that we would be more in the mix. But, but here's the thing: you're not just funny and relevant. You're all deeply, deeply principled in this AEI way, pro-capitalism, you know, sympathetic to the military, socially conservative in ways that that are not common with people who have your particular background of biography. And I think it I think it 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 really leavened AEI in a big way. You're responsible for a lot of the success over the past 10 years, quite frankly. Uh, it's very kind of you to say that. I'm not sure any of that is true, but um you have violated uh, one of the core rules of this podcast, uh, which is that I don't take compliments well. Um, <laughs> I come from a long Hebraic tradition of thinking all compliments are bad luck. 
Um, but <laughs> but thank you very much. All right, so look, I, like I've been reading the book, and I I will concede it's fascinating. It's 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 compelling. It's really interesting. And and I've already established that we're members of a mutual admiration society, and I like you a lot, and I respect you enormously. Um, but uh, and I, I don't mean to be a jerk about this. But why <laughs> this is, is going to be good? Whatever this is, is going to be good. That's all. I can say. Why is it that there's something about happiness research and your entire this entire field of endeavor? which is not your entire career. You've done lots of other things, but this is your beat these days. And this is what yeah. this book is about. Why does it just piss me off? Like, what yeah. is it about happiness research that makes me want to smash your guitar on the wall of Delta house? Um, <laughs> there's just something, uh, I, I don't know what it, it quite can't put my finger on it. And maybe we can get into it that I find there's a, it encourages solipsism. Maybe. Um, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but do you know what I'm talking about, or do I, yeah, do I, am I just giving voice to my misanthropy? No, 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 no. Look, I mean, it's like the, the most of the field of happiness uh, is in the self improvement realm, and it's mostly annoying and unscientific. And as a result, it's kind of aspirational, but unrealistic and unhelpful. And so, if you're the uh, kind of person who really is insists, like you are, at staring straight into the sun, like I want it, whether I like it or not, I want it. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to talk about it then you're going to find it incredibly annoying. It looks like a kind of an avoidance mechanism of the slings and arrows of life, the vicissitudes of, you know, getting from one end of the day to the other. I get it. I totally get it. And I came into the, the field more or less with that presumption as well. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a red pill kind of guy, not in the QAnon sense or right. the, you know, the modern whatever. I mean, it's like, I want reality. I, I want it. Well, it turns out that that's entirely consistent with the, the, the scientific study of happiness. Forget the, just the general blah, blah, blah that you often hear about it. You know, when people, I ask, you know, what is it just to get, you know, take a temperature on what people think happiness is? They talk about their feelings, but that's about as accurate as saying that your Thanksgiving dinner is the smell of the turkey. If that's your conception, conception of the Thanksgiving dinner, well, then it's not going to be very nutritious, very meaningful. And I can just spray something from a can into the air and you'll say, happy Thanksgiving. Well, that's kind of why it pisses you off when people talk about happiness. It's ethereal. It's, a, it's vaporous. Well, really, happiness as we understand it um, starts from the presumption that some people are happier than others, which is manifestly true. And, and it comes from three really macronutrients, all of which have a huge scientific literature behind them. You're not going to be a, an actually happy person, self-evaluated or evaluated by others in, in, in pretty sophisticated scientific ways, unless you have enjoyment in your life, you have satisfaction in your life, and you have purpose in your life. And purpose requires suffering, and purpose requires pain, and purpose requires that you experience a lot of things that are pretty darn unpleasant. The paradox of happiness is that it requires unhappiness. And most of the literature out there and most of the writing about there doesn't recognize that. It's kind of this psychological hedonism. And as a result, it doesn't, it doesn't get you any place that you need to go. It's not helpful and it's not accurate. And that's what's been bugging you. And so you need to go deeper. And that's what I try to do in my work. Okay. So I did you a disservice by starting with my uh, unfair and irrational uh, annoyance with the whole field rather than asking you the question I'm supposed to ask you when you have a new book out, which is what's your book about? So yeah. with your previous answer involved, like what's, what's the point of this? What, 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 are, and I have follow-ups obviously, um, but like why this book? Why now? Since I've been, since I left AEI, um, one of the things, the value propositions that I've had for myself is that I honestly believe that an, an understanding of well-being um, 
trying to get more away from a fear-based cultural polarity is what the country needs. And the reason I believe that is, is, uh, and and I've learned a lot from your work too, about the, you know, how, you know, the psychological basis of the American experiment, which is, you know, between the Civil War and the First World War, when the United States came to be what we understand it to be in in modern life, when the conservative movement, for example, actually became what we might recognize today. It was on the basis of a self-improvement culture, the idea that you can, that we're all ambitious riffraff trying to build something with our lives. That's the most beautiful thing. It's the only country in the world where that's possible. That's the basis of American life. And, and underneath that is this idea that I can be better. I can be happier. I can bring more joy and love to the lives of other people. I have the capability to do that. My, my life is not an exercise in, in feudal toil which is so unusual around the world. And I said, you know what? Look, we're in a fear-based polarity in our culture and politics. What do we need? We actually need more of that. We actually need a scientific study of this. We need to teach it. We need to embed it in the way that leaders lead. And I need to bring it on as big a scale as I possibly can. And I'm going to take it one chunk at a time. So I teach 27 and 28 and 29-year-olds MBA students at Harvard Business School, a class called Leadership and Happiness, which is a very oversubscribed class on how they can become happiness teachers based on these big philosophical ideas and and also the basic neuroscience and social science behind it. And then I took the other angle, well, and I write a weekly column on the science of happiness for the Atlantic, which is 1,500 words based on academic research, but in a way that humans can use it. And then I wrote this book for the big mystery in most people's lives, which is is it possible for me to get happier as I get older? Or do I just have to leave it up to chance? And by the way, this was an empirical question. I did not know the answer to this question, but you know, I'm 57. I'm getting older. And this is me search. I want to know the answer to this question. And what I basically found was that you don't have to leave it up to chance. This is a book that basically says that there are some paradoxes. Strivers, ambitious people, they tend to be unhappier when they get older, not happier. But it doesn't have to be this way. And if you actually have you practice the right habits that you can be happier at 75 than you were at 25. And I'm living according to this book and I'm happier than I was 10 years ago. Okay. So why don't we uh, just give people a flavor of what you're talking about. One of the things I really liked in the book um, is your animosity or uh, uh, your contrariness to the whole concept of a bucket list. And, um, and, and I'm, I'm letting you get a little of your stuff out before, you know, I, uh, ask more probing questions, but I really like this part. And so why don't you explain what, what's, what's wrong with having a bucket list? Your brain is conspiring against your happiness all day long. And the key thing to keep in mind is that mother nature doesn't care if you're happy. Mother nature wants you to pass on your genes. And the way you're most likely to pass on your genes is by being successful in worldly terms, money, power, pleasure, fame. Those are the St. Thomas Aquinas called those the worldly idols based, of course, on Aristotelian philosophy. Then these worldly idols, they promise divinity and they don't deliver. But your brain tricks you into thinking that if I get that, I'll be permanently satisfied and all will be well. And so this is why we in my business, we talk about the hedonic treadmill, this treadmill where you get on it, you run and run and run, but you never get there. You never find satisfaction, but you always think you will. And it's incredibly uh, uh, frustrating for people, and they don't quite know why they're running, and after a while, they're running out of fear, because if you stop on a treadmill, boom, you go off the back like a hilarious internet meme, and this is uh, one of the great frustrations in life. So one of the ways that we do this, one of the ways that we continue to, to, to propagate this misguided notion 
that chasing these worldly goals is going to bring us the satisfaction that we, we seek is by doing things like the fabled bucket list. And if you Google this, you'll get 800 million hits or something about the bucket list. And they're idiotic. I mean, the average, the, the seventh most um, um, listed item in the average bucket list is a hot air balloon ride. I mean, Jonah, I can't think of anything I want less than a hot air balloon ride. And yet people are thinking, I don't know, it's just experiences I haven't had and things I haven't seen and stuff I haven't owned. It's just this aspiration to, to, to you know, uh, trivialities, basically. The right thing to do is to, re- is to create a reverse bucket list. If you really want to be satisfied, the formula for satisfaction is not getting what you want. It's wanting what you have. And so you don't need a haves management strategy. You need a wants management strategy. Think about it this way. You know, anybody who's listening to us who remembers their high school math, you know, who wasn't like, like you, who wasn't just smoking dope and goofing around during high school. <laughs> so it was uh, satisfaction equals your haves divided by your wants. That's really the right, the, the right formula. You got to remember not just the numerator, but especially the denominator. And if you, all you're trying to do is to blow up your numerator, what you're effectively doing is you're, you can't, just can't stay ahead of it. Your, and your, your your denominator, the wants are going to balloon out if they're unmanaged, like the suburbs of Atlanta. It's going to be sprawling, and you're not going to understand. You know, I had this friend of mine, a mutual friend of ours, actually, one of the the great titans of private equity who was um, on our board at AEI for a long time. And he said that when he was, he knew he was going to be successful. He was going to know this by because he was going to go into the Mercedes dealership and be able to buy a car in cash. And I'm thinking, <laughs> who can buy a car in cash? It's like a drug dealers and private equity managers, apparently. <laughs> So he's 32 and he hits the mark and he, he goes in and he says, I want my car. And they give, he's driving it off a lot. And the first thing he's thinking as he's driving it off a lot is I should have saved for six more months and gotten the Ferrari. You know, this is a <laughs> sprawling want. And so the, the reverse bucket list is a wants management strategy where you're basically on your birthday, make the list of your sticky cravings, which is, you know, this is word in Sanskrit, upadana, which means the sticky craving for inadequate things. It's, a whole paragraph in one where it's beautiful and, and, and make a list of those things for sure. And then say metacognitively, in other words, not reactively, not according to your impulses, but according to your executive function, I'm going to detach myself from this possession and this craving and this urge and this desire. And the weird thing is it works. It's not just blah, blah, blah. When you say, I don't want to be attached to the, that admiration from that person I don't care about or even respect. You won't be anymore, or at least you'll be less so, and you'll be free, and you'll be, you'll be happier. Yeah, you know, so it's one of the reasons why some of this resonates with me, and I, and I, I got to ask, how exhausting is it for you to be talking to people on a book tour about a book about happiness, and every interviewer makes it about themselves? Uh, <laughs> you know, you know like, I actually love it. I actually love it. And this is why I did it. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a, when I, when I left AEI, I said, look, I'm going to dedicate my life to love and happiness. I'm going to dedicate my life to lifting people up. And I get, you know, I'm getting, I mean, the book is sort of in, in the news right now. So I'm getting, you know, dozens or even hundreds of emails a week that are from people saying, I just read your book and it's really helping me. And you know how that feels because you've done this too. You've read books that have actually helped people live better lives and to be happier and understand themselves. I remember when I read liberal fascism, I understood my ideology better because I read that book, you know, and by the way, that book, I think it came with how long was that book? Number one on the New York Times bestseller. No, 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 it was, it was not very long. It was on the New York Times bestseller for a while, but it was only number one for one or two weeks, something like that. I'm so, sorry. Yeah, I mean, that must be, that must be, make you feel quite inadequate at this yeah. point, doesn't it? 
on the list of things that make me feel inadequate, it's pretty low, actually. <laughs> but that book, it, it, it helped to define how a lot of people understand themselves, not to trash anybody else, not to use our values as a weapon, but to say, gee whiz, you know, this really is, these are the things that I think I do. I mean, I'm a, I'm a warrior for not just a free society, but for free people who are emancipated from their urges and from all of the bad stuff that's going on in society. And I'm in charge. I'm the CEO of Me, Inc. That was an incredibly empowering book. And I'm sure you heard back from that. And that was the most gratifying thing. That's why you wrote the book is my guess, even though you wrote it when you were 15. So maybe you didn't articulate it that way. Well, it's funny. I was going to bring this up, not to get into uh, bestseller list comparisons, because I think you've officially now uh, beaten me. But um uh the i remember quite vividly uh when it hit one and i did a and we had a book party in dc at the mayflower hotel and all of these people that i admired and thought were important people showed up at this thing and i remember being basically pretty miserable and <laughs> it was one of the more important lessons of my life which is that you know uh the brass ring has a really metallic taste. <laughs> and, um, You're not supposed to lick it, Jonah. <laughs> well, now you tell me. Um, and uh, no, it's just like, it, like it turns out that the thing, like the things that uh, I had seen as benchmarks for, I, you know, like sort of in the Norman Podoritz way, making it right. Like really had fairly, you know, uh, anticlimactic feelings. Right. And, it it's one of these things that I try when I'm trying to mentor younger people, um, you know, at AI or at dispatch or before that at national review is telling them, you know, like by all means pursue your career. That's why you're here. Right. Cause you could be making a lot more money someplace else. But, um, a lot of this stuff is not the thing that is going to deliver you happiness in, you know, after 15 years of striving to get it, you'll get some satisfaction at it. You'll, you'll be, proud of your accomplishments and all that kind of stuff but it is not the it's not the, the the meaningful thing that you maybe think it is from watching it from afar and the same thing goes with like being on tv I mean, like one of the things i learned early on is that like t being on tv in your 20s is really cool when it helps you meet chicks but like once you get married the the, the diminishing returns start cascading really quickly <laughs> and um uh but I guess, I guess, so part of my question though, is like one of the, as I said at the beginning, one of the things I, I learned a lot from you and listeners of this podcast know this because I talk about it all the time is the concept of earned success. Yeah. And, um, uh, and isn't a lot of what you're talking about in the book, at least on the public facing side, the career side, the, the vocational side, the, the civic engagement side really about just earned success. For sure. Um, the happiest people in life, you know, you can boil the ocean of 10,000 academic journal articles and which of course I've done, I've read them. So our listeners don't have to. And they basically the habits of the really happiest people all throughout life, not just in the second half of life, which I'm primarily talking about in this book, you know, your happiness 401k plan, which is basically this book. But for everybody at every age, what happy people have in common is that they have four things that they think about a lot and do every day. And they index very highly, which is their faith, their family, their friendship, and work where you earn your success and serve others. That's it. And I don't care if you're a bus driver or a you know a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute or a professor at Harvard or whatever. If you believe that you're earning your success, which means that your skills are meeting your passions, you're into it, 
that you're being rewarded for your accomplishments, and 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 at most importantly, that your work actually serves people who need you, you're going to get intense satisfaction from that. That's really critical. The mistake that we make with these worldly rewards, whether it's and, and by the way, every striver is just a success addict. You know, hit the lever, get the cookie. And what that is, is dopamine related. Everybody knows that the neuromodulator dopamine lies behind all of uh, our addictions because it's the, the neuromodulator that, of anticipation and reward. And so you're going for it. And dopamine is a liar. Dopamine says that you're going to get purpose and permanent enjoyment as opposed to a moment of satisfaction if you get that number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list or the equivalent thereof, whether it's a promotion at work or just the admiration of your boss. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't bring the things that it actually promises. It's, that's the reason that I talk about faith, family, friendship, and, and earn success and serving others through work, because those are the things that will bring goodness to your life. They'll bring enduring happiness to your life, satisfaction that won't burn off like a summer rain, that they'll bring the purpose and meaning. And to get those things, you actually have to suffer too. You got to sacrifice, you got to live a full life. And so, you know, it's funny, it's the, the, the great blessing. I'm having a book that's doing really well at 57 as opposed to 27 is because I care an awful lot about the things that matter more. I care a lot more. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm on book tour, but I'm really looking forward to getting home and seeing my wife and my son who lives with me, my 23 year old son, he moved home only because he's engaged and he's going to get married and he's living with us until he gets married. And it's like every day is so awesome that I get to actually have this particular experience and I'm, I'm savoring my friendships. I mean, I call my friend, my, well, I have this really, really close friend in Atlanta named Frank Hanna. And, and yesterday I was talking to him and we weren't talking about the book. We were talking about life, you know, faith, God. This is the stuff that we actually talk about. And this is one of the constellations of age. Um, so you have a great little excerpt in the book. Um, I, uh, about someone you know who was very successful in business, was drinking too much, had a bad relationship with their kids, and you gave them the advice of sort of maybe those things aren't the symptoms of the problem, they're the, 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 the cause of the problem, and yeah. uh, stop drinking, work on your relationship with your kids, maybe pull back from work a little bit. And she said something along the lines of, I think I'd rather be special than happy. Yeah. Um, now, that's bad, right? That's bad. And I, I've talked about this, I think, on this podcast a few times about how, you know, my wife has this rule about certain people who are on the road, who choose to be on the road when they don't need to be. Um, right. And uh, it's one thing if, you know, like you are out there raising money a ton and you're on a book tour and sometimes you just have to be on the road and that kind of stuff. But like, um, and it's not always true, but it is often true. It's a pretty good heuristic that there there is some really bad situation at home. Like, like they don't want to be home and being on the road, quote unquote, working is a is an acceptable excuse for not dealing with your problems at home. And I so I agree with you very much about you know the, the some of the morals of that story. But, you know, in your four idols from Aquinas, you know, uh, money, power, something, something, and honor, which pleasure, be, pleasure and honor. Yeah. Pleasure. pleasure. Honor. Yeah. Um, you're not anti-pleasure, right? Nope. I mean, you're not totally anti-hedonia and, and you are not anti-honor in that classical sense of like glory, right? I mean, you, no. you want to be in the mix. You want to be fighting it out. You want to have, you want to measure your victories in a positive way 
and 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 socially beneficial way, but you want victories, right? I mean, so what what is wrong with wanting a little glory and pleasure in life? Damn it! There's nothing. <laughs> there's there's nothing wrong with that. But the way that you're the world lies to you, and you know the world and the entertainment system and the internet are nothing more than a great digital limbic system of the brain, the lizard brain, but in digital form of, of enormous and terrifying power. The way that they lie to you is by telling you that those should be your intrinsic goals. There's nothing wrong with having money, power, pleasure, and honor as your instrumental goals. They'll only ever do something good for you if you're refracting off of those things to the things that really do bring satisfaction, that really do bring meaning, that, you know, service to others, the love for the divine, the love for your family, the, the real friendships. But if you're basically, if the, the world says, you know, get money and you'll be happy, get famous, get powerful, have the prestige and admiration of other people, get empty pleasures, and, and it'll be just awesome. This is this hedonism that people have, and it's empty, and it's a lie, is the key thing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean those things are bad. On the contrary, you need those things, but you need those things as an opportunity for you to get to the things that you, they're tools. They're tools to get to what you really need. And I need a screwdriver to put some to put a screw in my wall, but I'm putting the screw in the wall to hang something on my wall, and that's my ultimate goal. If it's all about, man, I love this screwdriver. I'm going to be weirdly dissatisfied. And that's what money, power, and pleasure and fame are. Yeah. No. Okay. That's, that's fair. So why don't you explain to the listeners for a second, the difference between, since I use these terms and, and I'm in this rolling argument with Steve Hayes about whether or not I should explain my terms more or just assume <laughs> the genius and brilliance and erudition of, of my listeners. Um, what is the difference and what is the nature of the debate between hedonia and eudaimoniac? I never eudaimonia. I can never pronounce it correctly. Eudaimonia, eudaimonia, right? Or eudaimonia, but eudaimonia. Yeah, for sure. So, what are the, these two concepts? These are the two ancient concepts that are at the crux of the debate between the the, the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus and the later Greek philosopher um, Epictetus. In other words, between the hedonists and the Stoics. Hedonia is this idea that we can. What we want is the minimum of pain and the maximum of pleasure. To go from and and this isn't this is necessarily libertinism. This isn't immorality necessarily. Epicurus, the great philosopher who was the proponent of this and the, sort of the father of this way of thinking, he was a deeply moral guy. He had a cult around him, which is pretty dangerous. But what they wanted was peace. They wanted friendship. But he he wasn't he wasn't sexually licentious. He wasn't a drunk. He didn't want any of these empty pleasures because he understood that, that one of the great sources of happiness is enjoyment, not pleasure. And, and enjoyment is pleasure plus elevation, pleasure plus morality, pleasure plus learning, in, in which case it's not just existing in the lizard part of your brain, but in the prefrontal cortex, which is the human part of your brain. And to do that, you need to impose actual well-ordered humanity on top of it. But the problem was that he wasn't getting into the meaning and, and, and deep satisfaction part of what happiness can be. Eudaimonia, which came from the later Stoics, it has a weakness, which is it's so meaning-focused that it can rule out enjoyment. I have many students who are excessively Stoic, and they're not very happy because they're not enjoying their lives. And you need to enjoy your life, right? You need to have well-ordered enjoyments in your life to have the, the levity that actually can come in from a you know, well-balanced a notion of what happiness means. But that was the going back and forth. Eudaimonia is a good life well lived by living in accord with your morality and, and making no exceptions in your integrity. I mean, that's kind of how the Stoics thought about it. The truth is that all of us, we need a, 
we need a weighted sum between these ideas. We need to be, I'd say, two-thirds Stoic and one-third Epicurean. And for me, as far as I'm concerned, that's kind of the right formula, you know, based on modern social science, but also on my intuition for the the, the best life. Um. Yeah. I mean, it's like I, when I when I think of the and, and my problem is with pronouncing pronouncing uh, eudaimonia. Eudaimonia. I'm not even going to try. It, is <laughs> I read it as basically uh, rhyming with you demand or you demania and like i always would just want to say no you demand um whenever i see the word but uh that spectrum yeah, of no, the, yeah, the, pur yeah. the pursuit of the meaningful self-denying life is like the monk right the 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 imaginary yeah. the monk of the imagination who maybe takes a vow of silence and only eats one kind of soup every day and and i, I guess there's a and then on the other end of the spectrum of the hedonia would be i don't know uh you know the the party planner at the playboy mansion or something right and um but what there there is there's this there's a tension in and i i know you're a very you're a passionate christian um and a devout christian and catholic and there's and Catholicism, by the way, is one third Epicureanism and two thirds Stoicism. That's, yeah. I actually defined Catholicism basically with respect to the ancient Greeks. So that's a, a little sleight of hand that I'm I, I, there, I so. picked up. I picked up on that. I I, I I see that. I see that you did. Of course, you did. You we did. are. Um, there's a there's a well known parlor game to listen to Arthur Brooks talk about social science and figure out where the catechism is. Um, sort of like <laughs> where's Waldo? Uh, I know. And in the end, the answer is it's everywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> But isn't there isn't there a, a real tension in in Catholicism about uh, I mean you say one third to two thirds but a lot of early Christian stuff for want of a more high minded term was about denying human pleasures right you know that this the world is sinful the world brings you down world's corrupt pleasures happiness of all kinds is for the next life or jo enjoyment is for the next life. Um, I don't. I don't see much of that in Christianity anymore. Am, am I not looking in the right places? <laughs> well, modern life is always tending toward Epicureanism. <clears throat> the tendency is always to go toward Epicureanism, and and Christians and 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 Muslims and and pious Hindus and religious Jews. We're just people, and so the result is we torque our religion and we torque our faith and we torque our philosophy to be more convenient toward our worldly urges. But the truth is, once again, Mother Nature is a liar. Mother Nature just, just doesn't care if you're happy. Mother Nature will say, yeah, absolutely. You know, go out and get as rich as you possibly can. You're going to be miserable. Um, make sure that you have a lot of sexual relationships that are disordered with people you don't love. That'll be really great. And of course, it isn't. But you people keep trying to do that again and again and again. And it's only with this, with this by, by imposing a better way of living on ourselves to be truly and fully human and the most human prefrontal cortex kind of way, a modern human fully alive, can we actually uh, assert our humanity over our animal nature? And that's the beautiful thing about it. Now, I honestly believe that it's a mistake to not enjoy life. And it's not just a mistake. I say that as a social scientist, I think it's actually a, a moral error not to enjoy life because it's a form of ingratitude <clears throat> that, you know, to, to, to deny myself all the pleasures of life is to deny the gifts that, that I believe God has actually created for us. And this is one of the great things, actually, about being Catholic. You know, you have this, 
you know, family life is full of all of these pleasures. And, you know, we, we, we drink alcohol at the mass. I mean, I don't, I don't drink, but the point is, as part of our religion, that, that alcohol wine with alcohol in it is, you know, is the, the fruit of the vine and work of human hands is what we actually say in the mass. And not to be religious about it at all. I think that all major religions and all good, even atheistic, secular, philosophical traditions all kind of get at this, that it's kind of, kind of, it's just not good. It's just not grateful. It's not, it doesn't reflect well on us morally to check out of the enjoyment in life. But at the same time, if you go in the libertine hedonistic direction, all you're going to find is unhappiness at the end of the day. And that's a, I mean, we've, we've established that, I think, as much as we possibly can with um, all of our history and all of your grandma's wisdom. We don't need more studies for that. So I like, um, at AEI, uh, uh, there was a, in the Institute for Family Studies, you know those guys well, I'm sure. Uh, Brad Wilcox from UVA. No, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yep. They, they, they had a study that was pretty disturbing, and you've all wrote a good sort of write-up about it, and I kind of pinged off on it as well, about how, you know, if you'd said 50 years ago what the the moral social breakdown in America was was about, you would have cited things like, uh, out of control crime, out of control, uh, sort of, uh, out of wedlock birth, um, right. abortion rate, you can go down a long list of things. And we're now finding that there are f fewer abortions, which are pro-lifers are supposed to celebrate. And I think they do. But one of the reasons why there are fewer abortions is there are few people having sex. There are, um, a lot of the social breakdown, um, metrics these days have more to do with inertia and entropy and lack of ambition um than they had to do in the past when they were about uh the difficulty of const constraining human uh wants and desires and energy and ambition and yeah you can see how japan you know a lot of people including me uh see the canary in the coal mine is japan's culture which is just amazing numbers of people saying they have no interest in sex. They have no interest in really in, in marriage. They, um, uh, they're kind of retreating into their turtle shells. They have fewer friends. Um, I know that your book is aimed at people in the second half of their life. And it's merely a coincidence that those are the people who tend to buy books. But, uh, what do you, Weird. how do you think young people are shaping up? So this is what I teach in my class at Harvard. Um, I teach the idea that um, you are the entrepreneur of your own life startup. And this is a consistent and worldview with my students who are MBA students at the Harvard Business School. They're, they're, they're terrific. They're very entrepreneurial people. And so they say, ah, the most important enterprise is me, Inc. And I'm the startup entrepreneur of me, Inc. Well, that requires that you do a few things. You think about explosive value, not denominated in dollars, but denominated what you really care about, which quite frankly is love and happiness. That's what people want. That's what they crave. And having faith that you can get more of that by doing the right thing and, and other people investing in it, in the people around you. And then once we have that established, I can talk about what the really big problem is. You know, when we go back to what we were anxious about, what conservatives in particular were anxious about over the past decades, it was excesses of love quite frankly. A lot of it was, you know, in the 60s, they would say, if it feels good, do it. I remember that. I was four years old or something when Woodstock happened. And I remember my dad watching TV, you know, shaking his fist at the heavens. <laughs> and, you know, society is, you know, that that was back when he, yeah, later he was 
uh, a dyed in the wool progressive. So, but those are the days when, you know, Nixon was right or something. I don't know. But later on, when the love polarity with all of its excesses and problems and disasters, which we're well aware of, when the polarity turned to a fear polarity, we got excesses on the other side, and that's what we're seeing. And the data are pretty clear that the likelihood of being in love is a third lower today for people in their 20s than it was in the 80s when I was in my 20s. A third lower. This is catastrophic for happiness when you think about it. It's just terrible. So for sure, you say, wow, that's great. Abortions are going down. That's good. That's good for everybody. It's good for society, good for women. And, and even if you're a liberal who's, who's pro-choice, you don't want more abortions for Pete's sake. And then you look at it and say, it's because people are having less sex. And the reason for that is because people are, are expressing less love. And the reason is because people are less in love. And then you see that people are, are more isolated and people are lonelier. And half of people under 30 say, nobody knows me well. And the number of good friends, friendship has gone from seven or eight down to two or three, it, which is why our, we have this great Surgeon General in the United States, Vivek Murthy now for President Biden. And he says that our biggest public health crisis is loneliness. And it's most manifest for people in the 20s. For the first time, people in the 20s are the loneliest people. I'm super concerned about this. And I don't want the excesses of a free love culture, because that's deleterious to our, not just to our moral fiber, but it's really bad for kids, really bad for families, and ultimately it's self-harming. But what I'm really afraid of is that this fear culture, this antagonism toward happiness because we're so afraid and we're set upon each other. And in the, in, in the fear and hatred, we actually will, will wield our grievances and our victimhood and our fears as a weapon against each other. That's way, way worse as far as I'm concerned. And so, I mean, I don't want the excesses of the 60s. But I really, really don't like the excesses of loneliness and isolation and a lack of romantic and friendship love that we see today. I think it's a much bigger problem. Um, so I, I, before I, 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 I hijack the podcast to ask you some ex, ex, gratuitous questions. Um, <laughs> Let's get to the gratuitousness. This is what um, the customers are paying for, Jonah. It, indeed it is. It's, uh, but um, so you said, you know, you indicated that this was sort of me search, um, to a certain extent. Um, is it working on you? Like, are you happier? Is it, and, 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 and what are the, what are the things that you struggle in terms of practicing what you're preaching? Yeah. So to answer your question, yes, I am happier. I am happier than I was 10 years ago. And, and that's not just the normal passage of time, although it might be. You typically find that people from their early 50s until about 70, almost everybody gets happier. Not coincidentally, that's when the kids leave home. But, you know, it's just coincidence. You know, it's like this spurious correlation, no doubt, as they say. I am happier. And part of the reason is because I spend my days doing ideas now. I write, speak, and teach. And I love write, speaking, and teach, writing, speaking, and teaching. But more importantly, I actually have this information on point in my life. I am held accountable by my partner. Uh, this is what millennials call their spouse, mm -hmm. right? And my wife, you know, I'm, I just celebrated my 30th wedding anniversary and you know, she read my book. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's fantastic. And, and she's holding me account. So I tell you, give an example. I said, honey, I'm on the phone. Honey, we're debuting at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. There's a, there's a pause. And she says, well, there's only one direction you're going to go now. <laughs> it's uh you know th this is super important that we hold ourselves accountable to this and and i'm able to do that and and i'm succeeding in doing that and that's really 
just just great. You know, I'm eating my own cooking and it it tastes it tastes really good, I have to say. Now that doesn't mean I shouldn't have done something in my 40s. I'm really, really glad I was the president of AEI because I'm 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 very pleased that I was some small part in the trajectory of your career because that's good for my country. That's good for my country. That's good for America, that you are who you are and you have the moral fiber to stand up and say the things that you think. And by the way, at tremendous personal cost, Jonah. I mean, Jonah zipping it in 2016 would have been much better for Jonah's pocketbook. And yet you didn't. And, and I feel like there was this like you had a you had a team behind you. You had people who believed in you. And like I, I was a tiny bit of that. And that gives me tremendous satisfaction. I'm glad I did it. But I'm happier now. I'm happier now because I'm in the zone because I took my own advice. I jumped onto my crystallized intelligence curve. I went from innovator to instructor. And that was, I write books that teach people things. I teach classes that I hope teach people things. I write a column that teaches people things. And I'm in the zone. I'm in the zone of the strength where I actually reside. And I'm super grateful for that. And that's how me search actually made me better and happier. Um, okay. You are now here, here, here banned from saying nice things about me, but, um, thank you. And, um, uh, and I just, just for the record in this, this, this mutual immersion society thing, you were a big part of it, you know, cause, um, one of the things that was vital there, there comes a moment when you feel like you're taking crazy pills, right? And yeah. you feel like, well, all these people that I've respected or I've known or, or models in their careers are all going one way and they're saying things that, you know, you feel like, well, maybe I'm the one who's seeing the world wrong. And right. one of the things that you did um, is maintain a ethos at AI that allowed people to come to whatever conclusions they wanted to on their own. But at the same time, um, both through word and deed, you put a huge premium on integrity. And I got to say, look, I don't like to think that my pri my, my, my twenties and thirties were, were a time where I lacked integrity. Mm. I just, I didn't think about it a lot, you know? Right. And, um, the last six, seven years, have made you know me actually think a lot more about what integrity is and what it isn't, and um, and the ability to sort of not get swept up in you know it's very easy to avoid getting swept up in a crowd when it's a crowd you already disagree with. It's much harder right. to get swept, much easier to get swept up when it's a crowd of friends and colleagues and um, uh, and 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 in some ways mentors and. Um, and yeah. you were, and then yeah, you yeah. were hugely right. important to me as a safe harbor for me to allow. I'm glad to, to hear it. Say, and you know, so. you're never gonna. My guess is seven years later, or whatever it is, since the beginning of sort of craziness in in, yeah. in the movement. You know, the the great unpleasantness, or whatever it is, in the conservative movement. You're not saying it's like you know what? My biggest regret is having too much integrity. Nobody has ever said those things. Nobody's ever said, you know what I really regret is standing up for my own values and saying what I actually think, which I, which I think is actually best for others and best for the world. I sure am sorry I said the truth. Right. I, I wish I'd been more of a sellout. Nobody's ever said these things. And, and yet it's so easy to rationalize this. And we need a team. We need people behind us. And, and this is kind of what I'm trying to do in this whole happiness movement. Let's, let's remember as a country the moral and psychological basis of what uniquely makes it joyful to be an American, you know, and I've lived in other places, you know, I've, I've, my wife is Spanish and I've lived in Spain and, you know, and, and I've been, 
I've traveled a lot, like a lot of other people have. And one of the great things is that it's just when things are in the zone in America, it's just a happier place to be because you feel like you're building your life. And you have to build your life on the basis of understanding your values and living up to your values. And if I can do something in this book is about basically as we get older, we should get more of that, not less of that. We should be more in touch with these truths as opposed to being fooled by the world, fooled by you know the commercial basis of the sellout culture. And and this basically, it's a step-by-step. It's a, it's a handbook for how to get old and get happier on the basis of these deep-rooted truths of, of moral integrity. This is as good a segue, moment for a segue as we're going to get. Um, uh, <laughs> what, you know, what is your, and, you can, and feel free to tie it to the book. I mean, you're good at tying to the book. You're, you're no Tevi Troy, who I could, <laughs> I could pick six random words from the dictionary and he will say, as I say in my book, blah, blah, blah. But um, uh, uh what is the connective tissue between the, if you want to call it the happiness crisis or the meaning crisis or uh, whether it's not a crisis, whether it's a crisis or not, that's fine too. But the, the trends and problems that you're identifying and, and trying to fix in the book, is the, what is the connective tissue or the relationship to what's been going on in our politics for the last five years? And is there one? Or are they just on different tracks? No, they're not on different tracks at all. And this is what gets us back to fear versus love. Um, every country, every society, and most families and communities will 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 get stuck in fear. And and, and so it's really interesting. I mean, you look at, you know, the Gospels talk about, St. John the Apostle says that perfect love drives out fear. Lao Tzu said the same thing 500 years before. Um, a, every ancient philosophical tradition posits that fear and love are psychological, are cognitive opposites. And, and we actually find this. There's a lot of neuroscientific evidence that that is, in point of fact, the case um, of the of the of the basic emotions. That is to say, that are processed by the limbic system of the brain, and that are, happen to us in response automatically to outside stimuli. The master emotion is fear, but the most prominent positive basic emotion is love. And and what you find is that in in you know cognitive behavioral therapy or just basic psychotherapy, it's often counterintuitively true but true nonetheless that if you want to fight fear people who are really phobic people have a lot of debilitating fear taking on the fear per se is not always the best way to do it and frequently is the worst way to do it you want to neutralize it with the opposite emotion which is you need more love in your life and so when people come to me and say i'm afraid of failure you need more love i'm afraid of i'm afraid of society i'm afraid of what's going to happen to me i'm afraid of the future you need more love you need more love and when they when people say to me I don't have enough love in my life and I'm lonely. I say, let's talk about your fears. Let's mm -hmm. actually start trying to deal with your fears. And so this is the key thing that we have in our society today. Love, which is the nuclear fuel of happiness. Remember, faith, family, friends, and work that serves other people, aka, to be reductionistic about it, love, 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 and more love. You know, I'm starting to sound like the 60s here now. <laughs> that, 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 that is the, the secret of the happiest life. And, you know, there's this 84-year longitudinal study here at Harvard called the the Harvard study of adult development that's, that follows the same people over 84 years. Some are over a hundred today, not very many in the original sample are still alive. And it, it looks at what they have in common in their lives that leads them most likely to be happy and healthy. And the guy who ran it for 30 years, a guy named George Valiant, a psychiatrist at Harvard medical school said, it's easy, five words, happiness is love, full stop. That's it. 
Okay, so how does this relate to what we're going on, what we have right now? We're in the love, I mean, the fear polarity. You know, we have social media and, and traditional media and politicians who are trying to get us to hate. Hate is downstream from fear. It's nothing more than effect of fear. And it's highly monetizable. And that has become the vehicular language of people's values. Extraordinarily, people have come to the belief that they can use their values as a weapon instead of a gift and somehow persuade people. It's insanity. It doesn't make any sense at all. But this is what both sides are actually politically in the United States are trying to do. I'm going to make people more afraid. And in so doing, I'm going to grab power because the fear is the vehicular language of our ideology and our politics today. How do you neutralize that? I can rail against the fear, and I've done that plenty, you know, or I can say love your enemies <laughs> or which, by the way, was, you know, my book in 2019 that was, you know, not exactly in the zeitgeist and, and not a number one New York Times bestseller, put it that way. <laughs> and and, you know, but this is the key. I mean, this is what it's all about. Loving your confidence in your own future, love for your neighbor love for your family, love for our country. I mean, for Pete's sake, the one thing that the hard right and the hard left, the only thing they can agree on is that America is a crummy country that's in decline. Give me a break. How can you be so out of touch with reality and so power hungry that you would fire people up with the I hate America message? But that's a fear-based message. Our answer is to love more is to love people with whom you disagree, is to love the people who are around you, to love your family more, and to be just in love with the United States of America. That's what's going to neutralize the fear-based culture, and that's what I want more of at the individual level, at the family level, community level, and and at the level of our great country. Yeah, it's, 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 it's funny, and I, I'm sorry, but like you sort of stake out this ground socially social science grounded philosophically grounded principally grounded theologically grounded of course position of love your enemies at a time when the head of the republican party and the president of the united states was saying his favorite biblical verse was an eye for an eye <laughs> and, <laughs> sorry, read the room arthur <laughs> I, know, I know well it's actually talking about reading the room it gets better because right before the coronavirus in february of 2020 um, I was the keynote speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast, which is this big event, yeah. 4,000 religious leaders in Washington, D.C. at the Washington Hilton. And it's always a keynote speaker followed by the president of the United States. So, and, and I was sitting on the other side of the dais between Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence. And so, you know, this was the day after the, the pre President Trump was acquitted by the Senate from his, his first impeachment. And, and, and so he wasn't coming anywhere near my side of the dais because he wasn't, you know, <laughs> you know, there's no olive branch to Nancy Pelosi. I mean, it was just, you know, bad blood in a big way. And so I get up and I give my speech called Love Your Enemies. And I thought to myself, I had this conceit, you know, it's like, hey, maybe, maybe this is an opportunity. And just for laughs, maybe he'll say, you know, let's try it. Nancy, what do you say? Let's try it, right? So I give my speech and I thought it was pretty good for what it's worth. And then President Trump stands up after me and says, you know, I disagree with Arthur. And I thought to myself, <laughs> he just disagreed with this. Jesus at the National Prayer <laughs> Breakfast. That is truly a gutsy move, I have to say. <laughs> um, all right, so you, you you keep saying, and I've I've said it for years because I borrow it from you, uh, but you know, you keep saying how friends, family, faith um uh are the the keys to all of this. Um but there's also the genetic lottery, right? Yeah. There are just some yeah. people who were born miserable bastards. 
and there are some people who are born infuriatingly happy whistling zippity doodah out of their nethers when they have no justifiable reason to do it so yeah they're the worst they're i the hate worst. those absolutely. people yeah, yeah um, absolutely yeah they drive me they make me unhappy um so like well see that, but there's a thing in that like i'm, I'm serious about this yeah. like yeah. i have this i don't like crowds i don't like large groups of enthusiastic people even at concerts i don't like it i just i it's 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 a form and i think it informs a lot of my conservatism which is I find enthusiasm in large numbers to be off-putting and um, and potentially dangerous and always have. It makes me a little uncomfortable at rock concerts. Why is everybody doing the same thing at once? It just kind of creeps me out. Similarly, like in springtime, I remember when I was a teenager, everyone all of a sudden is like super happy and it would piss me off. Um, <laughs> now, maybe that's just my misanthropy, right? But let's say for whatever reason, it's my genetic programming. Um, and the, if let's say there are just people out there who are wired to one for one reason or another congenitally genetically to be unhappy. Is that fixable non pharmacologically? <laughs> so you're right that, that it's a lot, it's genetic. As a matter of fact, the number one predictor of baseline happiness is genetics. There's a lot of research based on identical twins. There's monozygotic twins that are separated at birth and raised by separate families. And there's a database of them born between the mid-30s and the mid-60s. Uh, and it was, it was researched by a lot of people, uh, Bouchard at Virginia and, and, and um, David Lichen at the University of Minnesota. And one of the things they find is somewhere between 44 and 52% of your happiness is, is genetic. It's your DNA. So you could be a naturally a Boolean person. Look at your parents and grandparents. And if they were gloomy, that's going to be the, one of the reasons that you tend toward gloominess or grumpiness, for example. Okay, that's actually hugely important to know. Mm -hmm. because you want to actually worry about the part of your happiness that you can affect. Now, another quarter, so half of your happiness is genetic, another half of your happy, half of the other half, quarter, in other words, is circumstantial. And that's what everybody's paying attention to. If I get the raise, if I get the promotion, if the woman I'm in love with agrees to marry me, then I'll be permanently happy. And that's wrong for all the reasons that we've talked about. That's the satisfaction paradox. That's something called homeostasis, where it burns off so you can get ready for the next set of circumstances. And we're fooled by that again and again and again, the lure, we're the bass going for the rubber worm again and again and again. The last part, that 25% is our habits, you know, faith, family, friends, and work, meaningful work. That's the 25% that we should be really focusing on. Okay, but back to that 50%. So maybe you've got a misanthropic 50% because your parents are like, crowds are stupid. They're dangerous. They're unpredictable. They can go from being really, really happy to deciding that since you have a bad opinion that you should be canceled or run off campus, just as a, an arbitrary example true, that true. You know, has no basis in any reality ever. <laughs> uh, so, okay. But here's the key thing about that. That's not necessarily bad if you know who you are and you use it as a force for good. Uh, Self-understanding is, is, I mean, knowledge is power. Uh, a good and examined life is one that actually accepts all the different parts of who you are to see them as strengths as opposed to impediments and weaknesses. Furthermore, those are your proclivities. You've got the switches. This is one of the things that we're finding in, in you know, the modern research about how genetics, how our genes are, are expressed and you know, the epigenetics of, of human life is that everything is, in, is genetic and everything is environmental insofar as you have decisions that you can make. So for example, you find that maybe, depending on who you believe, half of your proclivity toward, toward alcoholism is genetic. 
Well, guess what? 100% of whether I'm going to be an alcoholic has to do with my behavior and my decisions. If I don't drink, I don't become an alcoholic. I got the switches in my hand. This is a book about switches. Mm -hmm. This is a book of switches. Here are the switches to flip. Now, you're not going to be happy all the time. And actually, that's really important and really good that you're not happy all the time. The switch that you flip is to metacognitively say, I'm super bummed out. What am I learning and how am I going to grow? That's a switch. And so on the contrary, it's super good that Jonah is a little bit misanthropic, especially when it comes <laughs> to the when it comes to the crowds of people doing dumb things like like lighting their lighters and putting them in the air at you know Mick Jagger age 109 singing I can't get no satisfaction. You think it's idiotic. I know you think it's idiotic. You you put it to good use by exposing something about it that has cuz you're you're a scholar and you write about these things in a way that says, did you ever think I saw this. Did you ever think that? Well, that's a switch that you're using your natural tendency for human good. And that's all we need to do. That's the beauty of being fully alive and fully human. Yeah. Look, I, I, one of the things that I've sort of internalized about this aspect of myself is it allows me not to look down my nose at people who love that stuff. Yeah. Because I've realized that, no, this is not an objective truth that these people are inferior or weak because they love to, you know, uh, you know, do all this kind of crowd stuff and they get caught up in protest culture or in whatever. It's that I don't like goat cheese. It doesn't mean people who do like goat cheese are evil or wrong right. or deficient or stupid it just, or stupid. Yeah. It just means that right. it's not for me. And yeah. at the same time, having a little bit of that critical distance from the psychology of crowds does let you see things about the psychology of crowds and groupthink that is that is useful um at least i would argue um, a happy conservative has to have that jonah has to have that and and one of the great i think weaknesses of the modern conservative movement is this group thinking it's not individualistic enough. Look, I mean, the, the, fundamentally, the, the conservative movement in America, in its zone, is a Dale Carnegie movement. How to win friends and influence people. How to, how to stop worrying and start living, which are his two classic books, which is you're the master of yourself. You're not going to be carried along by the crowd. You're not going to think like everybody else. That's what American conservatism is all about. And that's a, its essence. That's the magic of Americans. That's, by the way, that's the reason that the world needs American conservatism, but a real American conservatism, not that this weird thing that we see so often in the United States today, which is I'm going to help you to get fired up and hate other people on the basis of our common fears. And by the way, here's what we all have to think. If we don't think this, that means we're no good, that we're that we're stupid or we're deficient or we're or we're, we don't want to get on the bandwagon. I mean, that's that's so anti-conservative at its base. Anyway, I'm mm -hmm. saying the same thing that you said. So back. To no, you. no, 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 so, no. I'm with you. It's like I keep one of my favorite books, even though there's large passages of it that you're just sort of like, why am I reading this? Um, is Julian Benda's The Treason of the Intellectuals or The Treason of the Clerks. And, you know, one of his points is is how you identify he says, you know, the politics in his age, which is almost 100 years ago, exactly now, was all about the the organization of political hatreds. And one of the things I learned from that book was as just sort of an intellectual history exercise. Anytime there's a political movement that um, that is sort of either sort of identity politics adjacent or identity politics based that. That enlists Jesus as its avatar 
watch out, right? So like in, like 100 years ago, there were a whole bunch of movements that would call Jesus was the first nationalist. Jesus was the first socialist. Jesus was the first eugenicist, you know, and no, he wasn't. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, like, like and um, you can, f I find that the times that we live in now are very much about the organization of political hatreds, right? And, and, yeah. and, um, that's right. That's exactly right. That's the fear of polarity. The fear of polarity. Remember, hatred is downstream from fear. And so the organization of political hatreds is the manifestation of the fear culture. And so, but like, we know, and we're not going to name names, um, because both of us have, we, we've made our fair share of enemies and, and just, there's not much room on the bench for more. Um, but, uh, <laughs> there's um, always room for more. They can sit <laughs> on each other's laps. Jonah. <laughs> um, uh, this is a question I ask a lot of people around here who've been, you know, involved in conservative politics and conservative intellectual things. The question, the, I'll use Rudy Giuliani because I use him all the time, right? The question is, were some of these people always crazy or were they made crazy, right? I mean, like, I have a hard time believing that Rudy, the Rudy Giuliani of 25 years ago would be trying to steal a presidential election or be saying things like, I never knew before that ballots aren't um, counted and most ballots aren't counted in the United States. Right. Which is just crazy talk. Um, did he go do, and you don't have to pick on Giuliani, but did we know that there's a whole class of those people who are saying things that at least their old selves would never have believed. And they may be not believing them now or they may be. Do you have a do you have a rule of thumb? Did a lot of these people that, you know, we were friends with um, and you, you know, you used to talk to politicians a lot more than I did because you, you had to for your job. Some of those people have lost their friggin' minds. I mean, there are things that J.D. Vance is saying these days that he would never have said five years ago. Um, do you have a theory of it? Is it is there a is the transformation authentic or um, opportunistic? So I think it's actually, in, in a sense, neither. And and this gets actually this is less philosophical and more psychological. It's more sort of based on the social science research on on how we actually build up our biases and convince ourselves of things. Most of the time, <clears throat> as you go through life and you establish your ideology, the admiration of the people that you care about and your integrity are in line with each other. You know, remember those days? Yeah, remember, you know, it's like uh, people that I love and I admire and and people that I voted for with great gusto, like George W. Bush. He wasn't right all the time, but I, I love his values and I, I agree with him politically. You know, George W. is a, and, and by the way, an outstanding individual. And, yeah. and so, and so my values were in line with my, with my votes and my admiration and the admiration I could have from other people on the basis of what I said was consistent with my integrity. But sometimes those things get out of sync. The things that you actually think get out of sync with the public zeitgeist and the people whose admiration you feel like you need or for whatever reason that you want. And that means that you got to make a decision. And Jonah, you made a decision and other people made the decision on the other side. You know, and you, you I mean, you, you made a hard decision, but you're at peace with it. And, and the other people that it looks to you like they've gone crazy have made their peace with their decision as well. Now, what happens when you, when you resolve a cognitive dissonance Toward because you got it one side or the other, and this is the cognitive dissonance between the admiration of other people and what I think to be right. 
And so you have to decide on one or the other. You compromise on one or the other. You compromise on the admiration of the people that you like, or you compromise on what you thought was right. And then it doesn't take very long before you conform to the new reality inside your own head. After a while, I mean, you're, you're aware that this was, but the people who are on the other side of it, then, okay, that's the new enemy. This is just what we do. Most people go through a relatively unexamined life about the resolution of their cognitive dissonances. There's a huge literature on this. This happens all the time. People will change allegiances. So the most amazing thing is that people will say, no, I'm not a Republican, I'm a conservative. And then conservative things are no longer accepted by Republicans in the mainstream of the Republican Party. And it turns out they were Republicans, not conservatives. Mm -hmm. all along. Well, that's because republicanism and conservatism were consistent. They were not dissonant. They were consonant. And then they became dissonant. That dissonance had to be resolved. And after that resolution, they simply redefined their terms. They simply said, well, what it means to be a conservative now is not what we all thought in the old days. Either we were wrong, or I'm just going to ignore it, or I don't care, or that was then, this is now, or whatever it happens to be. Raw, raw, raw. And then all you other guys who are the remnant you know, because, you know, it's like no joke. I mean, the remnants is a is a, a, a very important philosophical concept. Yeah. And you you you, you take it with pride. It's a, you're, you're proud of the remnant because for the sure. remnant's a good thing. I mean, historically, the remnant's super important for, you know, the, the remnant, by the way, is the Irish monks who kept right. the Roman Catholic faith alive at certain points in Western history. They were a total remnant. And, and nobody would say, like, you guys got to get with it, man. You guys got to put, I mean, turn those, what are you wasting your lives for? Well, now right. we know. Now we know. So I honestly believe that the, the vast majority of people, when push comes to shove, will, will solve, will resolve their cognitive dissonance in favor of the admiration of people whose admiration that they crave. And then they will... Uh, cognitively make it into a new consonance by changing the terms of the debate. And I think that's actually what's happened. They don't think they're crazy. In fact, they're not crazy. They're just convenient. I see what you're saying. And I, I mean, we are both, uh, I think as we discussed the first time you were on the remnant, we are both uh, passionately against monocausal explanations of anything. Um <laughs> And so I think that there is a, I, I, I think what you're saying is true for some people and not true for other people because, and you're, you might be, you might have the lion's share of the explanatory theory here. Um, I think you probably do, but like, uh, like Sidney Powell and a general Michael Flynn, uh, something else is going on there. Some weird <laughs> switches have been flipped, you know, and, um, um, and I'm not trying to single it out. I just think that there are there there are there are people who are truly embracing crazy stuff, and um, and I don't think it's just a matter of redefining the the, the terms of of a political faction, because I mean, look, this is and as we talked about back in the day, you know, uh, going into the sort of Trump era, I resolved in a sort of sort of like that Solzhenitsyn quote that the one thing I wasn't going to do was was lie. that, you know, right. I, I think most journalistic ethics are overblown Columbia Journalism School guild BS. But I pretty passionately believe that if you're in, the, in my line of work, broadly defined, um, you don't say or write things that you don't believe to be true. Yeah. And by the way, there's a commandment against that too, Jonah. 
I, I, I've heard rumors to that effect. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. there's rumors to that effect. It turns out it's, it's frowned upon by our fates. And, but like, so like, I agree you can, you can, you can do some, you know, lexicological ledger domain and rewrite some definitions so that you don't feel cognitive dissonance, but you're going to give yourself a hernia at so heavy a lift to say, to make the argument that say Donald Trump is a person of good character. And for five years, like King David, <laughs> right? Well, like for seven years now, I've been challenging people to say, to give me a definition of good character that Donald Trump can clear. And, you know, people have tried, um, and they've all been to my, by my lights, wildly unpersuasive, but at the same time for, for seven years, if I would say, you know, character is destiny and Donald Trump is a person of bad character, people would lose their minds in outrage. And it seems to me that like part of the psychological part of the problem here is that human beings are real. You talk about how our brains lie to us. Human beings do not like being told that their leader is morally bad. And so all of those pragmatic arguments about how he's better on the issues than the other guy, they, they melt away by our sort of lizard brain desire to believe that our leaders define our moral virtues. And, yeah. and so you end up changing the moral virtues, right? Well, I mean, if you tell somebody that they're that, that a leader that they admire is, is, um, is a reprobate, you know, most people will personalize that and say that you're saying I'm a reprobate. Right. That's what it comes down to, to be sure. Plus, by the way, when it comes to lying, one of the biggest problems and one of the reasons that you know, any political side at this point is, oh, is going to tend to fall for things that are not true and actually believe things that are not true, such that it's not lying, they believe things that are untrue, is because so many leaders have been saying so many things that are simply not true. Right. I mean, the truth is, it's just, it's just impossible. It's like, think about the coronavirus epidemic. We don't know. People honest, people of honest goodwill, they don't know what to believe when the CDC is changing their direction, saying that they know more than they actually know, or, or making sure that people are, are shielded from truths and, you know, this is hugely deleterious for public confidence. And when we find people who are lying to us for our own benefit or lying to us out of convenience, you'll go to the, what you consider to be the more convenient and lesser liar. You know, personally, I mean, it's like I, I, I'm a freak. I would literally not vote for somebody who has been unfaithful to his spouse mm -hmm. for president or, you know, for any high office. I wouldn't vote for somebody who is unfaithful to her or his spouse. I, because I think that if you're going to be disloyal to your spouse, you're going to be disloyal to literally anybody, right? including me as a citizen. And I don't want, you know, so it's a very practical argument as far as it goes. But people are like, yeah, but all the other disloyalties, the other deceits, they're so much worse. And so they're simply doing sums at that particular point. And I've heard that from people very close to me, by the way. I mean, it's like in my kids were it was supported President Trump. And, and you know, I have a kid who's, in, who's in a four-deployed combat Marine. I mean, he'd literally die for this country. And, and he talks about the reason that he really respects and likes President Trump. And I got to listen mm -hmm. under the circumstances. And he's not a sellout. On the contrary, he's, not a, he's willing to die for me and, and you. And yeah. so it's a, it's a really complicated business, I have to say. So I'm always looking for psychological explanations for this that don't bear poorly, that don't, that don't necessarily say that somebody who disagrees with me is, is morally reprobate. That's, I think that's good advice. Um, I really do. You've been generous with your time. I know we've gone a little long, but we started a little late. 
Um, and of course the people responsible for us starting late will be flogged. I mean, that's just it's, <laughs> for their own good. Justice is justice. <laughs> that's right. Um, so, uh, Arthur Brooks, thank you so much for coming on the book again. Everybody is from strength to strength, finding success, happiness, and deep purpose in the second half of life. Um, it's a bestseller. Uh, it's available everywhere and I highly, highly recommend it. And if you get it or you're going to get it and you want to tell the world that you got it because you listened to this interview, that's that's just good for everybody. So um, uh, tweet about it. Uh, spread the word. And um, Arthur, thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Jonah. I miss you. And thanks for doing what you're doing. OK, so Arthur is gone, um, but not from our hearts. Uh, I, I, I really am sincere. I the 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 kind words and all that kind of stuff you know, it's, it's on one hand, it's nice to hear on the other hand, it just makes me super uncomfortable. Um, and, uh, but, um, I really do recommend the book. It's really, it's really interesting. It's got a lot of stuff in it. Arthur is sort of almost unique in his ability to joyfully read lots of turgid studies. And, um, it's an ability I do not have. I'm, 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 I'm good at reading lots of people's summary of the academic literature, not the academic literature itself. Um, particularly if there are all those Greek, um, letters amidst the numbers, then I, it completely loses me. Um, but, uh, um, anyway, it was great to have him on. Um, for those of you who wanted more Ukraine content or state of the union content, we got plenty of that at the dispatch. Um, there'll be more, obviously, but um, you know, helping people figure out how to be happy amidst all of this horror seems like a public service as well. And um, again, check out the book from strength to strength. And um, other than that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. It's a podcast. started and so arthur uh obviously you mentioned the, the book title and all that but like what um um what is your title at harvard now i'm the william henry bloomberg professor of public leadership at harvard university william henry bloomberg Professor. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm that's Mike sure. Bloomberg's father. He named my professorship after his father, who is a dairy uh, accountant, a dairy company accountant in Boston. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Uh, an Atlantic columnist. Um, yeah, that's right. All that stuff. That's okay. right. All right. We're going to go now. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. 
I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.